Welcome to Rhode Island Avenue Radio, where we'll talk about news, education, and opportunities for small businesses on the Rhode Island Avenue Main Street and in Washington, D.C. I'm Michelle Yancey. And I'm Kyle Todd. Welcome to Rhode Island Avenue Radio. Our guest today is Joe Andronico from Access Green. Welcome, Joe. Welcome. Uh, we are we're going to be talking to Joe today not only about the uh, the business uh, services that he provides for energy efficiency retrofits and energy conservation, but um, they also provide residential services. So, uh, Joe, you're you're a great Rhode Island Avenue Main Street business, and we're we're happy to have you here today. Um, Let's let's start off by by talking about some of the residential services. Uh, Michelle, you were just telling me that you actually uh, have it on your hot list to do to contact Access Green for your home. Yes, yes, I do. Um, maybe you could tell our listeners what energy efficiency actually is, and if Access Green is the company that audits the efficiency, or do you sell the installation services, or both? Well, good questions, all, and um, I'm really glad to be here today. Um, the, the energy conservation services that we offer includes both the audit piece uh, to sort of assess it, but also we implement some of the, um, I would say, remediation or retrofit services that are required. Um, you know, I've been doing energy efficiency work for a number of years, and before that I was doing specialty contracting in the heating and air conditioning, uh, electrical, and some other services, and I, I thought that the marriage of the two would make sense. In other words, it's great to get go to a doctor and be told, hey, you know, you need to sort of improve your fitness or your health, but also, well, how do I do it? Or go to a personal trainer or something like that. And, and we like to do both. And it's a fairly scientific process, and so we feel that there isn't a, a conflict of interest there. We go into these homes and these buildings and do, you know, build, building industry standard tests that then result in some services that can be done. And then we do the post-installation uh, audit or commissioning that shows the homeowner that it was done right. So then you would provide before and after leakage data Correct. to show Correct. what has changed. Yeah, and that's, and that's the, for the residential side, and, you know, you obviously know a little bit because you sort of mentioned the leakage piece. Um, for the residential side, the biggest bang for your buck is air sealing and insulation. Um, and the way that you do that is you use blower door tests as well as infrared um, technology um, to show where the house is leaking. Most of the homes in the district um, are fairly old, and so they were built um, purposefully to leak because you needed ventilation. Well, as you progress you know, in, in technology and you install air conditioning or heating, which is required to live comfortably, um, the homes then leak that too, so then you need to make it tight, um, and you do that with air sealing insulation. It's a it's a fairly low cost um, technique. Um, a lot of folks um, sort of think that windows are the best investments, and windows uh, are good in the sense, more for aesthetic as well as comfort, but not their cost is fairly high, and a lot of the air doesn't leak through there. Just a matter of physics, it's up up and down, cold and and and, and hot. And so it doesn't move side to side. We don't have a lot of ranch-style ramblers here in the district, so it is something to, to consider. So, um, yeah, leakage, air leakage is a big component of energy waste. So is there a certain time of year that you should get this service done, or can you do it any time? You can do it any time. Um, the blower door tests uh, essentially will, will evaluate the air changes per um, hour uh, in your home, and that can happen any time. Um, 
the infrared might be a little bit harder to see, but we also do smoke tests with smoke sticks to see where the air leaks. But I, I think it should be done at any time, really. Um, and the sooner the better, um, because it really improves your comfort. Okay. So how did you get into this business? Uh, I was, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I was part of a larger specialty trade contracting business, and we did heating and air conditioning, lighting, fire alarm, and a few other trades. And I always wanted to take the approach of a whole building uh, and sort of building science because we'd get a lot of questions from folks uh, in the heating and air conditioning business saying, hey, the second floor or third floor of my row house or my house is you know, either really cold in the, in the winter or really hot in the summer. Yes, I need, yes. <laughs> I, need, I need a new air conditioning system. And we would go out there and take a look at it. And you know, at least the way that I like to do business is I don't really want to replace anything that doesn't need replacing. So we'd say to the homeowner, your air conditioning system is fine. Well, then why is this happening? And then we'd take a look at the fact that they have a bunch of recessed lights or they have a lot of penetrations from conditioned space to unconditioned space. And their ductwork wasn't done right. Um, so their system was fine, but there were other elements that needed to be addressed. And so that's why I wanted to get into it and have it be scientific. So it wouldn't be like my opinion or the serviceman's opinion. It was something that we could sort of show the homeowner. And in many cases, we'd bring in an air sleeve insulation company in. We'd take care of that issue. And guess what? The second floor was no longer cold in the winter, or as cold, or as hot in the summer. So that's how we started. So this sounds like this could be sort of expensive. Um, I did look into it, and I didn't look at any prices, but I do know that there are some incentives offered. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, so many jurisdictions offer incentives to get homeowners to, to become more energy efficient. The government is really trying to drive that, both commercially and residentially. And there are very good incentives in the District of Columbia for businesses and for homeowners to pursue. So on the business side, and I'll get to the residential second in, in a minute, they've got these great business energy rebates, um, which the, it's on the online at the D.C. Sustainable Energy Utilities website, uh, DCSEU. Incidentally, that's an entity that all of us, those of us who live in the district and who um, own property in the district, pay into through our utility rates. So we should take advantage of that program. Um, they have those. They're really good on lighting, also good on HVAC. By the way, on the commercial side, the biggest bang for your buck is lighting. On the residential side, it's air sleeve insulation. Now, there's other things. There are other things you can do, but I'm just talking about those that have good paybacks. On the residential side, they have incentives. If you get an audit done at your home, which generally runs uh, anywhere between three and four hundred dollars, and then you pursue um, some remediation or energy conservation measure, that audit will be repaid um, by the DCSEU, and then they have incentives depending on what you do to have air sleeve insulation. It could be up to seven or eight hundred dollars to cover those costs. Uh, an average air sealing insulation, again, this is all average, could be about $1,500. So it could pay for almost half of that. Oh. Um, and so, and to be honest, I mean, money is, is precious, and so I don't want to say it's not significant, but the payback on some of this happens in a year or two. So, you know, your investment, especially if you do get, it, get an incentive, your investment is paid back very quickly. Okay. So uh, you, you, you mentioned the... Uh, business business aspect um, it I I'm I have a, a bit of a background in in sustainability so uh, I understand where you're going with that tell tell the listeners um, especially business owners you know how, how much is how much is this going to impact their bottom line oh yeah um, so 
we've done a number of businesses on, on Rhode Island Avenue, actually. We worked very closely with Mount, uh, Mount Calvary, uh, Holy Church, um, Mint Dental, um, Zeke's. We're at uh, Good Foods. I hope I got that right. Um, we're doing some lighting, some some lighting there, um, and so you know the the, the lighting aspect uh, that we have focused on because the the best could could oftentimes reduce your um, your lighting costs um, by almost twenty five percent a year, up to a third. So the payback for these can be most of the most of the pr projects we're doing right now have paybacks of under three years. And the lighting technology lasts uh, for 10 to 15 years. And that doesn't include the consideration for maintenance and safety. We're, we did a bunch of lighting work for Edgewood, um, which is right there off 4th Street. And That's we, Ed, Edgewood Terrace? Edgewood Terrace, yeah. We did their parking lots. We did a, uh, a bunch of their exterior lights all into LED. And the feedback we've gotten from the customers, they've been so very excited about it because the uh, residents don't complain as much about the concern they had before with the dim lighting. It's a, it becomes a, a, a serious safety issue. Um, we're working with another client. We do a lot of low-income, uh, affordable housing. We've worked with Mana, Mikasa, and a lot of those. We just happen to believe that everybody should, should benefit, not just the larger corporations, but the small businesses as well. And we have, we're working with this large property management company, and we've done about three or four of their properties. And they called us last week saying, hey, look, can you really move this installation up because we're getting a lot of complaints from our residents and 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 some of those residents have been to some of your other buildings that you've done for us and they really want that in other words the residents are requesting this work interesting so not only is it is it is it uh energy efficient it's also from a safety issue and the technology has just gotten that far you can get the same amount of light output from a four watt bulb that once you got from a 20 watt bulb or a 20 watt bulb from what you got from a 60 watt bulb and so it's just a technological advancement that's made it possible to reduce the energy and have better lighting. And, and we're talking uh, migrating from uh, from either older technology fluorescence or incandescence to either newer technology fluorescence and LEDs. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really trying to push everyone I can to LEDs at this point. It used to be um, several years ago that you went from older technology fluorescence to newer technology fluorescence. But nowadays, um, with the incentives as well as the payback, um, I, I want folks to sort of focus on the LED side because that's really where the industry is going. Um, in fact, I'm talking to a large distributor, and, and lighting is moving to almost become um, a low-voltage uh, technology as opposed to a like a high-voltage. In other words, what I mean is the voltage required to run the lights um, are such that are so are becoming so low that you could run eventually you can run lights off cable wire off oh, wow. the old cat fives and th that kind of thing that kind of low voltage and so it's really pretty remarkable right right so uh there you mentioned incentives for businesses um and and those are are part of the dcseu incentives yeah. um and Rhode Island Avenue Main Street, for all you businesses listening, we also have um, some incentives available for exterior lighting. Um, so, you know, be sure to, to visit our website for information on that or, or give us a shout. 
Um, and then call Access Green because we'll do the work and we'll we'll double the incentives. Um, we'll give you you guys will get the Rhode Island Avenue and then we'll apply for the DCSEU. There you go, there you go, folks. That's, how about that for a plug? Uh, and let's let the record show that uh, as Joe was talking about the different light bulb technology, he was looking around the studio here at the lights. <laughs> okay, I was trying to find a new client. Uh, <laughs> oh, there we go. No, there but go, go ahead. Um, so. Uh, you know, going back to you know to, to saving money for businesses and, and obviously for for residential homeowners, um, what what's you know g- giving an average um, retrofit both for residential and for and for commercial? If you can you know ballpark. I mean, I know disclaimer not not everybody's going to have the same thing, but you know let's 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 talk some numbers. What what is an average uh, average monthly cost? Savings. Okay, um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to do it yearly, and then you know we can okay. divide. But no, let's don't. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm going to put I'm going to put you to the test here. So, an average air sealing installation job for a, an average home is about 50, between fifteen hundred and two thousand. And if it has a three year payback, okay, it means that um, you know that's three to six hundred you know, about three. Hundred, four hundred and fifty to six hundred dollars worth of annual savings um, on your utility bill. So that's a significant number. Um, if you're a business and you have uh, you know, fifty thousand square feet or twenty thousand square feet, and uh, let's go with a hundred thousand dollar retrofit, and it's a three year payback, that's thirty three thousand dollars a year that go to your bottom line every year for the next ten years. Wow. Um, same thing with a homeowner. That's six hundred dollars for the next X number of years. Now. Oftentimes, folks say, well, you know, what if I don't get it right away? Well, those things are, are you have to understand that um, oftentimes it depends on the seasonality. But this is, an over, on average, a weather-normalized environment. That's what you're getting. And it's pretty significant. Um, and then for the homeowner, I have to say, the comfort is really going to sort of make the difference. I know that once I had my house, and I live, here, I live on Rhode Island Avenue, the 100 block of Rhode Island Avenue Northeast. My office is in the 600 block. Of Royal Avenue Northeast. Once I had my house done for the air seat installation, my upstairs was just so much more comfortable, especially in the summertime and in the, in the coldest of the wintertime. Um, and yeah, have I noticed savings? Yes, but the comfort has really made a big difference. Right. So, what does the process involve uh, for a homeowner? So you you would call a company, an audit company. By the way, the DCSU on their website has a number of companies that you can use, not just Access Green. We're one of them. Um, and but we're going to call Access Green. That's fine. Yeah, we're on Rhode Island Avenue, so you exactly. would call us. Ward five. Uh, Ward yep. five. Um, and the and then you would set up an audit. Um, our our uh, auditor would go out, perform uh, a number. Of, it would be a couple hour process. Mm-hmm. They would do the blower door test. They would look at all the equipment. They would you know do a lot of other uh, sort of uh, diagnostic work. We'd prepare a fairly uh, thoughtful, um, but but easy to understand. Uh, audit report um, with our top recommendations based on your returns, what we think, you know, as, as well as based on your concerns, because mm-hmm. we interview the, the, the homeowner to find out what their comfort concerns are, what their energy concerns are, because that oftentimes reveals a lot. And, and our folks, knowing the science of it, can sometimes take the unscientific, it's too hot in my son's bedroom, mm-hmm. into, okay, we need to seal it this way kind of thing. Um, and then, um, and so what is the ceiling? I guess air that... ceiling would just so. So let's say we provide a, a recommendation that you need to do air sealing insulation. 
um, you would um, ask us for a proposal for that. We mm -hmm. would put a proposal for you, send it to you, uh, and then you would approve it, and then we would execute it. We'd come out to your home uh, at an approved time, and we would seal um, the penetrations that need to be sealed. We'd insulate the, the, the things that needed to be insulated. And that's like around windows and around register vents and things like that? Yeah, that's right. Um, um, and... Um, if it's if you have an unconditioned attic, then any in an uncon, unconditioned uh, or unfinished basement, there would be some work done there. But most of it really is in the attic. Um, the work that we would do. Oh, in the attic. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. okay. Yeah, and and with the with the homes here in this area, particularly, mm -hmm. so many uh, homes built in the you know twenties, twenties, yeah, thirties, and I, I know as a resident of the area myself, with an unconditioned attic. Yes. Uh, you, know, you can see in the wintertime that the snow melts off of the attic part of the roof faster than, than anything else. And right. I'm going, that's that's my heating bill going right through the roof, literally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it literally goes right through the roof. Uh, and and the air ceiling is, you know, so just several hundred dollars worth of work. And the insulation, you know, is 1000 to 1500 So it really is a fairly um, inexpensive way. To capture savings. So, do you have any suggestions on if, if someone wanted something to be done quickly at the lowest cost, something that what you could do? You know, my recommendation is get an audit. Okay. Get an audit because it's the same thing. You know, I I don't I don't know what I don't know, and and so as a homeowner, you really you you want to do the best thing for your house. Um, but you're not trained to do it. Um, and you certainly can go to the home improvement store or ask a friend, and they can give you sort of a, an answer. But I'm sort of a belt and suspenders guy. Get an audit, um, get it, you know, get some incentives for it, uh, and and then you have a report, a thoughtful report that tells you exactly what you need what's to. Going on yeah, it, it, yeah, and it is, you know, from from the best return to the worst return. So it it gives you the low hanging fruit to sort of address. And, and oftentimes, it, you know, we. Some of those reports are just, um, you know, do the, you know, do this or do that, or turn off the. I mean, turn off the lights. It right, seems, of course, like, it seems right. like a silly thing, but you know, you'd be surprised. Or go to Home Depot and buy LED bulbs mm -hmm. that you can screw in. A lot of that right. stuff for the homeowners, lighting can be done most of themselves. Right. You right. know, that doesn't require a contractor. You're not rewiring anything. In the businesses, um, there's a little bit more um, that needs to be done. So you are sort of rewiring some ballast and so forth. But um, yeah, I would say get an audit. I mean, it's it gives you an answer. And and audits for most of us in this business aren't big money makers, but it's almost like a price of entry. I mean, you need to understand what's wrong. It's like going to a doctor, like going to a as I mentioned earlier, a personal trainer or right. a fitness specialist. Each situation sounds like it would be unique. Yeah. So energy uh, conservation projects um, like like ceiling and lights and things like that. That's that's not all you do. No, that isn't. Um, so there are other a lot of folks probably know green and they think solar and and renewable energy and that's you know very sexy and that's the kind of stuff you can see on the roofs. That isn't always the best bang for your buck. So I don't lead with that. However, the District of Columbia has very attractive incentives for people to move to renewable. Um, it's both. Grants um, and and loans, you know, low interest loans or grants that they give, but it's also in the form of something called solar renewable energy credits (SRECs), which is a tradable um, commodity, and the district has very high SREC values. Uh, I always tell folks if a solar person comes to you and says, "Hey, I've got a deal for you," 
I can install solar on your roof for free and then you pay me over time. I always say to the homeowner or the business owner, scrutinize that deal very well because you want to make sure you're squeezing as much out of it for you as possible. What do I mean by that? An average uh, electric rate, and I'm just going to sort of, this is an average for a component of it, is about $0.10 cents a kilowatt hour. The solar renewable energy credits in the district are trading at $0.45 cents, Wow, uh, uh, a kilowatt hour. So what that means is if someone builds a system on your roof, they own it, they lease the energy to you, they're getting, at least for the foreseeable future, because that, that, that will go down, $0.45 cents a kilowatt hour. So four and a half times um, what... Uh, what you pay for electricity. So they're making a tremendous amount of, of profit on it. Um, and some of that may be going back to you in terms of that construction cost up front oftentimes you know, requires some of that money and you may have a very attractive rate. So I do not want to say that, um, that the solar deals out there aren't advantageous to the homeowner. All I'm saying is look at them, or the business owner, but look at them carefully. Make sure to ask questions about it. Uh, how are the SRECs being done? Now, if you buy a solar system and put it on your roof, then you have those credits, and those credits go to you. But then you've got to worry about maintaining that system and all that other stuff. And then you have to bear the construction costs, that upfront cross is there. We're working a lot with businesses to sort of bring that to their attention, almost like developers, um, so to speak, and, and, and bringing, bringing these projects to the table. Another thing that's happened recently in the district is a community solar law was passed, which allows that power that you put on your roof to be sold to other uh, businesses and homeowners, as well as if there, uh, if we can create some sort of land or find some land, which is very uh, difficult in the district, create some solar farms, uh, and then that power can be sold uh, to end users as well. So and that, that's a new program, right? That is a new program. The law just passed. The Public Service Commission just ruled on how the, the uh, tariffs should be handled. So we should start seeing some projects go forward. Oh, that's that's very exciting, and and you know a great uh, lead into the, uh, another question I had for you, or discussion topic. You you and I had talked a few times about some some visions for Rhode Island Avenue Main Street being a a green gateway. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like because we've got several businesses that that have flat roofs, and they're they've expressed an interest in. In doing some uh, renewable energy or or green green roofs, what the ca whatever the case may be, is yeah. best for them. Yeah. Now, is this with this new uh, community solar purchasing? Uh, is that something we could get? You know, several businesses, several buildings covered with solar panels and, and benefit the entire community. Well, and uh, this is also something that I, I want to clarify because there's some misunderstanding out there about solar and what solar can offer. So I've had people say to me, well, you know what, we'll put, we'll, you, you know, we'll use every square inch of our roof and put solar, and then we'll use the power, and then we'll sell it to our neighbor. The technology is such that solar, let's say that, was, I'll give you an example. I looked at a client uh, on Rhode Island Avenue, won't mention who, and we did do an analysis where we would blanket their entire roof space uh, with solar, and they'll probably go forward with it. Um, it will only provide, it will only generate about 25% of the energy they use just because of the, the solar technology and what it can cover. So if you put something on a roof and the building is used, it is a functioning building, depending on what the function is, it generally will not provide enough power for more than what that is. However, there are some situations where you have some bu empty buildings or warehouses or some land where it's not being consumed, that it can then be sold to the neighbors. And that's great. I mean, I think that would be awesome. I think it would be great to get, and I, I think 
I, and I don't think. I know Rhode Island Avenue can be a greenway. There's no doubt about it. It's got the, the mindset for it. It's very collaborative. We're already doing a lot of work on the efficiency side. There's no reason the renewable can't, can't take off. And it can be a greenway. It can be an example to the city of how different both the, 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 the private sector, the public sector, all the different incentives at play, you know, small business owners, residential owners, large business owners can all come together and develop something really significant. I'm, I have a meeting with a, one of the larger developers, successful developers um, in Ward 5, um, doing a lunch and learn at their office, um, you know, in early July to kind of let them know about this. So I think as we've talked, Kyle, we've, we've also, as you know, engaged the DCSEU in some discussions about what we can do on the lighting side. So I really do think that you know, I'm like a dog with a bone, and uh, and I'm going to be around, hopefully, not going to be around for a while. So I think if we stick with it, we are going to be able to show the city how, how that can happen. Um, and if anyone has any land that they uh, is not being used of any significance, and um, you know, that'd be great. One more thing on the on the green roof and the solar. I've also found an application which is being used a lot in Germany, where you can do both. You can have sedum, you know, type uh, mm -hmm, applications mm -hmm. on a roof and solar panels as well. So. Um, you know, we can sort of do a few things here. Yeah, I, there was a, there was just an article in the, in the paper not long ago about uh, the the city really putting a lot of, of investment in green roofs for uh, protecting the the bay with the with the stormwater capture. Yeah, um, it is is green roof technology. Is that something that the Access Green does as well? So we don't. Uh, we don't. We're not contractors in that. I'm learning about it, so and, and finding out the resource. You know, those who do it. We, we do some low uh, tech type applications. I mean, installing rain barrels and things of that nature is something we can do. But there's some companies out there that have more experience um, and technical know-how that we're looking to partner with to sort of offer it. And you hit on something really, really you know smart. The the stormwater management issue. It's not just because the city wants to do the right thing. It needs to do the right thing. The EPA has been after the district in this region right. to protect and preserve the bay for a long, long time. Right. And, I mean, I don't know if you guys just saw recently the announcement um, that George Hawkins of D.C. Water just made about using, you know, one of the ways to deal with stormwater management is through uh, stormwater management, you know, technology. And one of the ways to deal with the, with the water runoff, which they've been dealing with at D.C. Water, is with this. So this is here to stay. And for new developers... There's a stormwater management law that means you need to sort of comply with it. Um, and so, yeah, we definitely are looking at it. And, and I think that both energy conservation and stormwater management can, can meet and do so successfully. That's why I was looking for those applications where you can do solar and stormwater management on the same roofs. Yep, yep. It just makes sense, particularly in this area. Uh, you know, the D.C. water is going to be uh, engaging in a lot of construction for the um, – for the main sewer lines, um, yeah, it's a, the next year and a half. Right? Oh, it's yeah. it's going to be I for, for many half. years, yeah. um, and and it just makes sense to to do what we can uh, from from a business standpoint and from a residential standpoint to to install ways to to slow down that stormwater runoff before it even hits the sewer lines. But um, the the idea of being able to have both right. on, on a roof is is brilliant and. Rhode Island Avenue Main Street, and I'm sure many uh, commercial districts uh, in the area have, you know, business upon business with lots of flat roofs that could do something interesting on them. Well, and so my I originally started in business on the finance side, so if I, you know, here I am a green guy and I try to 
start talking all of that about money, but I just think that at the end of the day, residential homeowners and business owners, that's something they can understand, the bottom line. Oftentimes the environmental concept, um, understanding that it's a problem, we need to do something to, to help our planet. You know, people can talk about that in a global perspective, but how do I get my hands around it if I'm a homeowner or a business owner? And, and so I try to provide that to them on a, on a sort of financial basis. The stormwater management component is interesting. So you know how I mentioned the SRECs, the Solar Renewable Energy Credits? The district has started something. We'll see how it goes, um, where they're doing the same kind of uh, energy cr or stormwater credit thing. And there's, from my understanding, and I haven't looked at this in a few months, um, there was, there's been one transaction done. What that means is that you can build some sort of stormwater uh, management remediation on your property, but you don't really need it because you're not violating the sort of the, the, the law on it. Um, but you can sell that credit to someone who's downtown or right. on Georgia Avenue who needs it in order for them to meet their 50% or whatever the target is they need to meet. Interesting. So you have on-site remediation you have to do, but you can also, and that's what the credits are. It's a way for you to buy your way out of or buy your way into compliance um, until, you know, the market sort of gets there. So Rhode Island Avenue perhaps doesn't, uh, or some of these businesses don't have it, but if you engage in it and then you can sell it, you can also, you know, either cover the cost and or make some money off of it, just like you could with the solar. That, it, that's, a, that's interesting. And, and the, the cynic in me, and I apologize for this right now, the cynic in me says, well, if, uh, if, uh, if you don't really need to do it, if, if you are not contributing to the problem, but there's another business somewhere else that is contributing to the problem, then I, I, certainly the problem should be addressed rather than just bought off. Well, no, I, I, I totally get it. And, and, but let's say that business, it just isn't at that particular juncture uh, technically feasible for them to address it. Um, what the district is doing is giving folks the opportunity to address the issue until they technically can. And I don't know the answer to that, Kyle. I don't, I'm not that close to an odd developer to be able to answer. I don't know if the district rules are such that you can't fully meet it on, you know, on site with some of the older buildings. Maybe some of the newer buildings you can. And, and this, I think, is for new construction. Um, but it's, it's been, it's this, this sort of energy credit, um, carbon credit now, stormwater credit market has been around for some time. Some people can game it, but eventually it does provide, um, it does lead you to get to that market level where everyone is complying. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, okay, so uh, so what are some other suggestions that you could make for business owners um, as far as energy efficiency, energy conservation? You know, really look at your lighting. Um, we, and it doesn't matter if your building is, is, is relatively new either. Um, we respond to requests for proposals not just from the government side but from the private sector. One of the largest property management companies in the region, and again, I won't mention them, but um, they routinely ask us for RFPs. And they asked us for an RFP on a building on 14th Street um, there in uh, Northwest that was built two or three years ago. You guys know that the, that corridor has just gone through tremendous change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, well, if it's a two-year-old building, relatively high-end, you know, it's right above one of the more popular restaurants. That thing's got to be super energy efficient. Well, we go in there, and we recognize that they still have they have the high-performing fluorescents, but not the LEDs, and they don't have a lot of controls. That's the other piece. Lighting controls are important. What do I mean by that? You leave a room, the lights go off, or they dim. 
Um, you know, your bathroom, you leave a hallway, stairwell lights can be done on a bi-level, you know, thing. You've got also daylight daylight harvesting where if you get a lot of sunlight, the lights can automatically be dimmed by themselves with some of the newer technology. So lighting is a really, and controls are really cost-effective. So we go ahead and do the analysis, and we've got a model that allows us to then show the return. Um, it, that particular building on a $44,000 um, installation with incentives, um, reducing it, um, it had about a year, 1.2 year payback on a relatively, wow. new, relatively new building. So that's 80% type returns. I mean, who doesn't want to invest in that? Right. Now, we did not win that one. We were slightly high on our costs above a competitor, but I still use that as an example. As um, you know, To me, it just blows my mind how technology has advanced even just in the last couple of years. Oftentimes when these buildings are being built, um, the general, uh, the developer is going to put in the, the type of technology that will allow them to comply with the requirements, uh, but oftentimes they're not going to put in the absolute best. And maybe when they did it two years ago, it was too costly. But or maybe because technology is changing so quickly, maybe two years ago they did put in the best, but it's not the best anymore. It's not the best anymore, correct. Right. So, I mean, I would say if you're a building owner, really look at that. Um, heating and air conditioning is, is a big one. Um, those systems are a lot more expensive to change out. Um, so we could look at, you know, we could look at and recommend some things on the HVAC controls. The air sealing insulation, depending on the structure, is generally not as big of a deal because, um, you know, you've got, a, you know, you've got multiple floors and things are, are much better sort of insulated in that, in that, in that way. Um, so I would say lighting and HVAC are on the, on the commercial side, the, the biggest things you can look at. All right. All right. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if, if folks want to find out more, uh, your web address is accessgreenonline.com. Correct. And all the information's there. Um, email us, call us. Um, and, uh, my email is joe at accessgreen.com and I am constantly getting emails from our customers or other people that have questions we'd love to help great great and uh for more information about the incentives uh available uh folks both business and residential can go to dcseu.com dcseu.com uh, i believe uh you guys plus dcseu the you know, are all on social media yes. right um, and for businesses on the Rhode Island Avenue Main Street corridor, uh, if you're looking for exterior lighting, uh, you can also touch base with riamainstreet.org for some uh, financial assistance on that. Um, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, and, and I'll tell you that the neat thing about this kind of work is what I want to push for is hiring local residents as well um, to put them to work. It's the kind of work that they can do and they can get up, get, uh, go up a trade and get a career. I focus a lot on that as well. I didn't mention it, but I wanted to put in a plug for that. That's, that's awesome. That's fantastic. That's okay. fantastic. Great. Thanks, Joe. No problem. Thank you. Glad to be here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are here today with uh, Oraminta Newsom and Adam Kent from the Local Initiative Support Corporation. Welcome, Oraminta and Adam. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so, uh, Local Initiative Support Corporation, LISC, um, please, please uh, tell our listeners just uh, a brief overview of what, it, what it's all about. Okay. So, the Local Initiative Support Corporation is commonly called LISC, L-I-S-C, all capital letters, because our name is entirely too long. <laughs> uh, we are a community development investor. 
which means that we mobilize resources uh, from foundations, corporations, individuals, businesses, um, and use those resources to make loans, equity, grants, and then use our brain power to provide uh, technical assistance to nonprofits and sometimes uh, joint ventures between for-profits and nonprofits that are doing projects, programs, and initiatives that improve the quality of life at the neighborhood level. We are an organization that was originally founded in 1980, and we were uh, the brainchild of the Ford Foundation. And so we are now approaching, I guess, our 35th year. I guess we were in our 35th year, Um, and we are a national organization. We're headquartered in New York, but there are 31 list sites around the country, and then we have a very robust rural program in about um, 20 states across the country. And so when you think of LISC, think of us using the resources that I just talked about to bring uh, grocery stores to neighborhoods, health centers, art centers, housing, um, adult education programs, uh, employment centers, all those things that allow people to have within their neighborhoods the things that they need to thrive in the city. Great, great. And and Ormenta, you're the executive director of, of the DC LISC. Uh, what is what's the service area of, of the DC? Are you specifically just in DC? Are you in the greater DC area? Well, actually, I'm a vice president with LISC, which covers in my territory is Washington DC and Virginia LISC, which primarily is Richmond Richmond LISC. But as far as the executive director part of my job, it is just Washington DC, not Maryland and Virginia. Right. Uh, so, did did LISC get started here in D.C. in in, in the eighties? I mean, is, right. you said we, you launched in the eighties. Was it here in D.C.? No. Well, we launched in New York, and for about two years, uh, the staff of LISC worked in New York, and then went out to the respective sites. And clearly, that wasn't working. So they began to open offices in nineteen eighty-two, and we were one of the first five. One of the first. Of the first five to open in 1982. Right, right. Uh, what are what are some of the the more um, higher profile projects that that you've worked with here in DC? Okay, so let's try to find a, a range there. That would be the Howard Theater. Yes, that was fun, Um, especially when they had the grand opening, five days of celebrations. I went to everything. (laughs) Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And that's over, uh, um, just because i got to give a plug to our fellow Main Streets, that's over in the Shaw Main Street area. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that uh, that was wonderful to be able to bring back the, uh, the Howard Theater. Um, if you, some people may be familiar with uh, the Giant a grocery store on Alabama Avenue in Southeast. Mm-hmm. That whole complex is called the Shops at Park Village. We were able to provide the equity uh, for that. The White Law Apartments, um, White Law being a historic building in Shaw at 13th and two, uh, T, that was actually originally uh, the place where all the African American uh, blues and jazz artists stayed because it was originally a hotel. Mm-hmm. In the 20s and 30s, um, so Duke and Ella, like I know those people, but of uh, and so it fell into disrepair. And in the 90s, uh, Mana um, began to restore it, and that's one of our proud moments to be able to uh, say that we invested in bringing back the uh, the White Law, um, the Kingsbury Center on Upper 14th Street, uh, which most people probably just don't notice is this 
gorgeous white building there that's um, a school for children with learning difficulties. And uh, we're very pleased to have been able to uh, help them be able to purchase that building and now become, you know, I think K through 12. So those are just a few examples. So uh, you mentioned uh, when we first started talking about uh, the projects that you you do uh, that you're involved in, in loans and grants to nonprofits and and or partnering with those nonprofits for for-profit companies. Um, how do how do those loans and grants work? Or do you how do you how do you determine what type of project you're going to support? Well, we as an organization we have a mission, and it's pretty apple pie, but it's essentially helping nonprofits to create healthy neighborhoods that are good places to live, work, raise your children, and do business. Um, so that pretty much covers it. But then under that mission, we have our sort of goals, um, and those goals range from um, uh, investing in what would be considered healthy um, living, wellness, arts, recreation, services for seniors and youth. Um, and then we have the real estate, which has the tendency to be the real estate side, which is more focused on housing affordable housing for um, lower-income households. But then we also look at uh, goals around employment and um, household income, household uh, assets, and, and uh, wealth. So we start with our goals, and everything that we invest in fits under one of those goals. We are an ask-and-response organization, so we've been here long enough that pretty much the nonprofits know who we are. So the phone call comes in, and... Uh, the nonprofit says, um, I'm looking to buy an apartment building, uh, renovate it, and provide it as permanent supportive housing. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a winner uh, right there. Um, someone else will call and say, um, I'm working on, I'm an adult education provider, and we've run out of space. We've, we're, our operation is too large for our space. We need to find a new facility. That's another winner. So each call or each uh, email is uh, take that first cut. Does it fall under our goals? Uh, is it a nonprofit um, that uh, we've worked with or even a new one? And um, then we go from there in terms of determining what resources that we can offer. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and and Adam, I, I know I've I've worked with you um, on looking at some some economic development. Uh, hard numbers for the Rhode Island Avenue Main Street. Um, tell us about some of the work that you've done, uh, with research, with with going out and, and talking with businesses. What? Sure. Uh, so we first got involved with Rhode Island Avenue um, about a year ago when we took a tour with you along um, the corridor. And it's just been a really interesting corridor when you see kind of development inching up from the center of the city towards Maryland. And uh, there's a clear, you know, need for investment along the corridor and a demand from the community to do that. So after meeting with you, we we took a deeper dive looking into census numbers and census data to see kind of the changes that were happening along the corridor. And really what those numbers pulled out was that there is, there is a need for, for investment and also a need for investment that takes into account uh, existing businesses and in the existing households that have lived along the corridor for a really long time to make sure that they have the chance to stay here uh, as development continues. And I guess that, you know, this this combination of of, um, 
of work that, that LISC does here in D.C. Is, is what I think is one of the most valuable things about your organization. Is, you know, not only are you um, investing in, in the community from uh, the, the economic development standpoint and the community and the housing standpoint uh, from, from via loans and grants, but, but you, you take a hard look at, at, at actual numbers and, and you're, you're investing more than just money. You're investing your expertise and your wisdom and, uh, and, and providing that, that technical assistance to organizations like, like us uh, or, or the other nonprofits that you're working with. And I, I think that's a powerful combination and, and something that uh, you know, takes you, you know, obviously far beyond the, the scope of just a, a lending organization or a granting organization. Yeah, well, money can only take you so far as, as a nonprofit. And, you know, we exist to, to build capacity in our local nonprofits so that they can have a voice in, in the change that happens in their community and uh, really be able to feel like they have a say in what goes on. And that is hilarious. Not hilarious, but it's funny that you say that because it's uh, that, that type of phrasing is what we use when we talk to our community members about you know, we exist so that you as a community member will have a say in the type of development that comes to Rhode Island Avenue and, uh, and it will empower you to, to make changes in your own neighborhood. So uh, I, I'm so glad we all agree on that. <laughs> um, so, you know, in, in, in full disclosure, uh, LISC uh, has definitely uh, been uh, an involved partner for Rhode Island Avenue Main Street. Um, and, and Adam, you touched on that, on the fact that you guys came out and toured and, you know, liked, liked some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, what, what types of things would, would you like to see happen in the way of, of growth and, and management for the Rhode Island Avenue Main Street Corridor? Well, I think um, we, that's not really up to us. Um, that's up to the community and and the main street and the organization that you found, um, we trust our nonprofit partners. And so when we go through a vetting process and build a relationship with our nonprofit partners, there are eyes on the ground. And, you know, of course we have, we have, we're a mission based organization and need to focus on investments that further our mission. But at the end of the day, we aren't, going to make an investment in the community if the community doesn't want it. And so I think really looking at the numbers and, and thinking about what, what makes sense and the trends that are happening, but also talking to the residents, talking to the businesses, and making sure that our investment aligns with the direction that they want to take in the neighborhood. So so what, what, what do you all see, um, I guess, as, as some of the, the trends to watch out for as far as economic and community development? Well, I can say this. I, I started in 1995 in this job um, when the city was at a very different place. And um, I've watched 14th Street and I've watched New uh, Street and others um, just um, go under um, this amazing change that many of us could not have envisioned um, when, when I started in '95. So there's a little element of be careful what you ask for, you may get it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, and when you get it, the change comes so fast. 
Um, it's amazing how fast it comes because all of a sudden someone looks up and goes, Rhode Island Avenue Northeast, that's the place to be. Mm. And, you know, the development starts and, and you got all these new good stuff. And then one day you go, oh, my goodness, um, are we getting the balance that we want? Yeah. Are we getting the diversity that we want? Right. Um, are we being in any way overwhelmed um, because of all of what has come to the uh, avenue, and how do we balance that? Right. So that's one of the things I've watched uh, over the years, and I think anyone definitely in your position, especially when you are, um, you're becoming more attractive, that sort of balancing act of getting what you want and what the community wants but not being just so overwhelmed by it. Right, right. And that's uh, – I could not agree with you more on that. Uh, we've seen, as you pointed out throughout the city, uh, areas, um, commercial corridors now that have um, retail rental square foot rates that are are so exorbitant that, you know, only a restaurant could – could cover that, and you can only have so many restaurants in an area, really. Um, so one of the one of the things that we really benefited from uh, early on in, in our formation was going through the DC Vibrant Retail Streets program that the Office of Planning put on, uh, and talking about what a healthy mix of retail looks like. Uh, and and our community members have certainly made it abundantly clear to us the types of of neighborhood serving retail that they want. And of course we all want some restaurants, uh, but we also want some of the basic neighborhood services of a dry cleaner, a grocery store, you know, where you can get good fresh market foods, like, like good food market, Um, you know, pet supplies, things like that. So we're, I know that that's something we're, we're struggling to, to make sure that we uh, attract the, the appropriate mix, a healthy mix of retailers. Um, And, and Adam, I know you know we're, we're working with you on, on looking at some demographic numbers to to be able to support those hunts when we start going after those retailers. Um, from a from a residential standpoint, um, we're looking at a lot of new apartments and condos coming in the area. Um, we're looking at um, certainly uh, an upswing of, of residential density in the next five ten years. Um, any any thoughts on that? Any any insights? Any words of wisdom on on how to to make sure we get the the right situation going? Right. I, well, it's tough because at the end of the day, DC is just a city, and this is, these are kind of global market trends where you're seeing a movement into into the city. Especially, you know, when you look at New York, DC, LA, San Francisco, uh, even in Chicago. Um, you're seeing a lot of movement from the suburbs in and a concentration of, of wealth in the city. Um, and the, the interesting point about D.C. is that we're landlocked. We have a height r- limit. And to, basically a third of our land that we have in the city is owned by the federal government. And so we are very limited in the amount of density that we can build, which then means that results into affordability issue. If you can't build a lot of units, the units that are there will increase in price much more rapidly. And so there is, there is a balance that needs to be struck. We know that people are still moving into the city, and D.C. is a very, very desirable place to live. How can we build 
in a more dense manner, but uh, that also incorporates existing neighborhood um, culture and 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 feel, mm-hmm. um, and also make sure that when we do, you know, maybe tear down a two-story apartment building and build a, f- a five- or six-story apartment building, that the residents that were living in that two-story apartment building can still afford to stay in the new right. units. Right. And, and we've been, you know, lucky so far. The developers that are currently operating in the area are, um, I, I think they're being very mindful of of the impact of what they're doing and, and certainly being mindful of the impact upon existing residential tenants um so so far we're very lucky on that so far no i was going to say one of the things though about commercial corridors i think that has to be a part of the plan is as the city changes you are going to get an influx of usually higher income younger population but then you also have the existing population which ranges from older to younger but may have a more moderate income is that the corridor what's on the corridor responds to that breadth uh, because the tendency in a, in a capitalistic society is that you you uh, aim toward the highest income right. in terms of the products, in terms of the services, and what they will cost. But, you know, there has to be such a focused effort on those things that if a household makes 30000 cumulative, right. that they can still shop on Rhode Island Avenue right. um, as opposed to something that's geared, always geared towards someone who's making $100,000, $150,000. And that's not easy. I mean, there's this uh, real estate um, response to the market. Um, so organizations like ours and yours have to work on that balance, right. you know, trying to get that, that um, dry cleaner in there that doesn't charge an exorbitant price for dry cleaning. Right, right. And just jumping off on that, uh, Another big part of, about you know commercial revitalization and economic development is connecting residents that live in the community to those businesses and to those job opportunities. I uh, saw a couple days ago um, some numbers that looked at the incomes of DC DC born residents and those that were not born in DC. And over the past five years, the income of DC born residents has gone down, mm. while those who have not been born in D.C. Have, have gone up. And so I think as a city and, and as an organization, w- the importance of connecting existing residents, residents that have been here for decades, to the economic development opportunities that are, that are happening is very important. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to be interesting, just looking at that example that you just gave, it's going to be very interesting to see how that, how that fluctuates over the coming decade two decades because there's a whole new generation of of babies being born in DC and you know they're they're the product of the young professionals that are settling here and shoot moving into you know next door to me because uh, I I live in Woodridge and you know we joke about there being a baby boom happening in ward 5 um, and and it's going to be really interesting to see how those how those numbers change if they do over the coming years and 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 you know, is it? I wonder if it's if it's interesting enough or possible to drill down on the current drop, and you know, compare that to the age of current district residents. Are are the young district residents that were born here that are of that prime income 
range? Are they moving away so they're not here anymore? Or are, you, are those numbers the people that are retiring mm-hmm. and, and settling out? Um, that's, that's a very interesting, um, very interesting demographic number. Yeah. It is, because it is a, a sort of, in some ways, a confusing time demographically in the city. Um, that's, that makes it, I think, harder for businesses to sort of figure out uh, where's my clientele, right. where's my sweet spot, right. um, you know, and, and how do I uh, attract Mrs. Wilson, who's 80 and retired, um, lived here all her life, but how do I attract, you know, this um, new couple uh, that has a one-year-old? Right. Um, I don't necessarily would want to be a business trying to figure that out. That's uh, <laughs> that's not an easy one. Uh, but I, I think your business is along Rhode Island Avenue. That's one thing that will be important in terms of their survival is figuring that out. Yes. Yeah. yeah and we've got these long-term businesses that have a die-hard, loyal customer base of of folks that have lived here in the neighborhood uh, all of their lives, potentially for m- multiple generations, and. Um, you know, Carl's Subs is a great example. They, every day, have a line out their door at lunch for the best subs around. Um, and, and yet they don't have any kind of web presence. They got nothing. So the folks that are, are going in there uh, are folks that have known about Carl's for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, there's every day at lunch there's, there's a... Folks from you know uh, DC government or construction crews or whatever that are lining up to get those phenomenal subs. Um, you know what would happen if what would happen if Carl's suddenly got a Facebook page because those those young young families that are moving in the area, you may have the best subs in the world, but if you're not on the internet, they don't know you exist. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl's is doing just fine. He doesn't need to worry about that. But, you know, thinking about that for other businesses, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's one of the challenges that we've got. And one of the things that we try to, to help our businesses on our corridor with is, yeah, you've, you've got the best product, insert your choice here, um, in, in the whole D.C. area. But um, quite frankly, your loyal fan base, your loyal customer base is getting older and they're not you know they're they're retiring to Boca, or or North Carolina, mm-hmm. and uh, and you gotta attract the new folks. And let's let's just set you up with a Facebook page. Yeah. Let's just set you up with a single web page that just tells me your address and your hours. That's all we gotta mm-hmm. do. So you exist. Um, so yeah. it's in finding the 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 argument that win, wins that conversation is really important. And maybe maybe it could be framed around. Hey, you don't need to rent anymore. If you expand and grow, and increase your revenues to a certain extent, you might be able to purchase your building. Which means, um, no matter what happens along the corridor, you have, you have a stake in it, and you're able to to stay there. Hey, thank you for bringing that up. That is that is uh, that is another very valuable project that we would love to get businesses uh, more engaged in, and is becoming property owners instead of property renters. Um, and that could be a whole other show right there. We can, we can talk about that for days. Um, so one of one of the things that we're always you know, you know trying to keep an eye out on is is upcoming challenges for businesses. We've already touched on the the social media or the visibility component. We've touched on very briefly the the renter to purchasing. What are some other challenges that uh, you've you've noticed? 
uh, that are, I don't know, uh, I hate to say common, but uh, more common than they should be um, as far as challenges for small business owners in D.C.? So, I mean, the big, the big thing that what I've heard is just access to capital and getting, getting the access to capital that's flexible. So right now, with the great streets, you can get access to capital, but that capital needs to be spent on facade improvements for the, for the most part, or equipment purchases. So what are some ways that um, either the private lending community or the nonprofit lending community and, and the city can come together and, and figure out ways for more flexible capital so businesses can make the initial investment to really get off the ground um, or weather a storm. Um, for instance, when we had, you know, a lot of snow this, um, this winter, you know, what are, what are ways that businesses can kind of bridge that gap? Um, another thing, I think, is uh, small business technical assistance. And so there's a, we've actually, uh, the D.C. Council just voted on a budget that increased uh, small business technical assistance by over two times the amount that it was uh, it was last year, yeah, yeah. Um, and and actually made that a line item in the budget for the first time, which provides visibility to to that program. And um, I think the stat that, that I was told was that last year, uh, forty four hundred businesses use uh, small business technical assistance. So the, obviously the demand is there for, um, for this type of technical assistance, whether it be setting up your books and um, making sure you have you know, a consult, uh, like an accountant that you can rely on to get you timely book figures or, or getting some ideas on a marketing strategy or, or setting up that Facebook page. Right. And, and you know, as, as rapidly as, as tools and, and atmosphere is changing for small business, uh, I think the fact that they've doubled the SBTA uh, option is could not be more timely uh, because it's it is a, a rapidly changing world. Uh, you know, just the the rise of the incubator space alone, you know, creating a whole new uh, influx of entrepreneurs that that they don't they don't have to get the full full blown brick or mortar brick and mortar to get started, but mm-hmm. um, but once they get to the growth point. They've outgrown their their incubator space at Union Kitchen or, or Mess Hall or 1776, but they're not quite ready for a full-blown production space. You know, how do you bridge that gap? Right. And the, the other, uh, I don't necessarily think, I guess you could label it a challenge, but, I mean, we're seeing, I mean, look around D.C. skyline. There's cranes everywhere. So we're seeing a lot of high-density mixed-use development where you have retail on the ground floor. And I think we're missing an opportunity as a city to get our local small businesses in those ground floor real, um, retail areas. Yes. Now, I understand that there's an underwriting. Um, the underwriting is to explain for this because by its nature, small businesses are a little bit more riskier than, than a chain. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also a lot of value to having uniquely local stores um, in our in our first floor uh, retail spaces. Yeah, and you know, I I won't I won't name the location of, of this development, but you know, I'm I'm familiar with one that was having a hard time filling its retail spaces, and you know, I said, so what what's up with this? This seems like a prime location. Why don't, why don't you have people beating down your door? Uh, and and the the spokesperson that I that I talked to said, 
Well, we've got lots of applicants. We just don't have very many applicants that have viable business plans. They, they, don't, they don't necessarily have a realistic program set up, and um, we're, we're not going to invest in all of the build-out for them uh, for something that's only going to last six months. There's your case for small business technical assistance. Right exactly, there. exactly. And, and the challenge to that is how do you get to those those visionaries, those dreamers, those entrepreneurs that have this idea to be able to nurture them along before they throw up their hands and give up and mm-hmm. and don't come back. No answer. No, we, we, we got no answer to that. <laughs> um, any uh, any big uh, programs or projects coming up on the on the calendar that the fo- folks listening should know about? Uh, well, I mean, as far as LISC is concerned, mm-hmm. um, well, uh, let's see. We are working with uh, an organization called Some, So Others Might Eat, mentioning commercial corridors. Um, they have purchased a, uh, a city block on Benning Road. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, and uh, they're bringing to that commercial, to that block, um, a medical center, um, Center for Employment Training, which is adult vocational education, and um, two rental properties, uh, two apartment buildings, um, and so the, it's and it's literally next to the Benning Road Metro. Oh wow! So we got us a little transit-oriented development. We got medical care. We have residential. We have adult education. Um, probably, probably a small retail. Um, mm-hmm. Probably less than five thousand square feet, but still, still. Uh, retails. And this is um, the largest non-profit development in terms of size and cost that's going on in the city now, the local non-profit. Wow. As in. So we're excited because we're using many of our products, and one is the New Markets Tax Credit, Ooh. which um, is a tool that commercial corridors can often use. Um, and we're able to use the New Market Tax Credits for the health center in order to generate equity. Um, so we're we're um, anxiously awaiting the U.S. Treasury making the announcements for the next allocation of new markets tax credits. Thankfully, so, this project is from our past allocation, but uh, that's a, a tool that um, uh, is uh, you know, sort of Congress keeps playing, um, you know, basketball with it. You know, uh, in terms of whether they're going to reauthorize and put new dollars in it, but it is definitely uh, an excellent product for um, commercial development. Or in this case, community facilities development, but um, that's an exciting project for us to uh, to be able to invest in really the entire the development of an entire city block. Wow, yes. that that is an entire community into itself. Into itself, that is right. That is fantastic. Yeah. What is the timeline looking like for that? Well, um, I know some would like to break ground this year, um, but uh, when you have a project that large, you have quite a bit of um, number of players and financing sources. So, you know, under the best scenario, if all the financing closed this summer, um, then some would be looking to um, to start construction probably in the fall. And it was, it's a like a two-year project. Uh, but then that's just huge uh, scale. One of the things that we enjoy is also the small projects that we do. So we just um, got a request in from a tenant association that's working with a for-profit developer to purchase their building because of the very issues that we've been talking about is the the pressure on the real estate market uh, is um, raising rents, and so it's it's more difficult if you're moderate or lower income to live in the city. But because we have a law in this city that allows um, 
tenant associations to have the first right of refusal in terms of purchasing their building. Right. And we've actually done a few here off of Rhode Island Avenue. Um, and um, uh, But in this case, it's a tenant association that's joined with the for-profit who's like, okay, we want to stay here, but we don't want to worry with managing this building. So that's a nice combination. So they come to us and they need the earnest money deposit in order for them to buy that building. And so that's a, you know, we do a lot of that, uh, and a lot of acquisition financing. And those are particularly uh, important to us because, uh, you know, you, you get to meet the people. Uh, you know, oftentimes with housing, you, you're building a new building. And so, you know, eventually people move in. But it's just a building when you first start. With our work with tenant associations, we get to know who lives there, why they want to stay there, the backstory, and then when it's all finished, it's like, wow, you know, we helped anyone from the retired person to the disabled person to the household with three kids that just needs stability um, to be able to stay in place. That's a good feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, what a, what a, what a, a great thing to have on your accomplishment list. It, it really is. And like I say, we've been fortunate enough to be able to invest in at least two, three along the Rhode Island Avenue, um, the Dog Green, and sorry, I can't remember the other one. Sierra. I mean, Sierra's a little further down. a little south. further down, yeah. But, but um, So, yeah, so you've, you have that, um, I think people living in apartment buildings along the corridor here have that awareness that they need to be in a position to be able to purchase their building or have someone they work with purchase their building so they, they get that stability mm-hmm. as you increase the, the viability of the corridor and everybody goes, let's all go move off the Rhode Island corridor and then, you know, prices start to go up. So they're they're smart enough to look ahead and say, mm, we don't want that to happen. We, we're going to stabilize yeah, ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, just like uh, a business owner purchasing his, his own commercial property, that's it just makes sense. Um, so LISC provides wonderful funding opportunities to businesses and, and, and communities. Where does, where does LISC get its funding to provide this funding? Well, anyone within the sound of our voice can, uh, can contribute to <laughs> this, LISC. This is why I asked. <laughs> yes. uh, but uh, banks, um, corporations, uh, insurance companies, uh, foundations, uh, high-wealth individuals, individuals who are not high-wealth, who just thinks this is a nifty idea, I'll come up with $100 to contribute to LISC. So um, anyone who um, believes in our mission. And we take those dollars and we aggregate them um, to invest in your work or, as I mentioned, some of the other things that we're doing. So we're that, we're what's called an intermediary. Um, and um, every, I think this past year, just so that people have a sense that um, uh, the dollars are going, um, our overhead, you know, my salary, uh, Adams and others, was 3% of oh. what we invested in the community, which was over $20 million. Wow. Yeah, so we, we got a high return from, uh, well, we, we keep our overhead down, and we uh, uh, we get an extraordinary return from our investments. But, um, yeah, we're constantly looking for new sources of, uh, of revenue. I mean, some provide loans to us that we then lend. Others provide grants. Some are investors so that we can get equity um, to invest in projects. So, um, uh, like I said, we're constantly looking to diversify. All right. So uh, to all of the all of our listeners, if this is a project that you're interested in, um, how can 
how can folks reach LISC? Well, um, we in several ways. Um, I am going to refer you to our webpage uh, because that's probably the, the way uh, people uh, um, get connection. Even, but you will notice there's a big sign saying on the webpage saying under construction. <laughs> We're about 30 days. Well, two weeks, I'd say, two mm -hmm. weeks away from the new web page. But frankly, right now, that's that's the easiest way to learn what we do and uh, where we are. We're on um, K Street, and um, on our web page, you'll also see our phone number. And so we're always happy to talk to people who are looking to invest or people, you know, with, like I said, within the sound of my uh, voice that uh, – see themselves as a potential uh, client of LISC, based on what I've said, um, give me a call. So the, the website is lisc.org slash, slash Washington, D.C. Yeah, and, and take the present site with a grain of salt. Just, uh, <laughs> I'm looking at it now. Yeah. It's, it, it still has lots of pretty pictures and information. Okay. So. Well, it'll be even prettier in a couple weeks. <laughs> All right. And uh, social media, Facebook and Twitter. Yes, we are on Twitter and, uh, and uh, Facebook, yes. Yep. Uh, all right. Uh, well, thank you very much, Orminta Newsom and Adam Kent from LISC for joining us today. Again, you can find out more information about LISC at LISC.org slash Washington, D.C. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. It.